I'm going to get him back for that one, Will. How's everybody doing? Good. That was quite a little rainstorm we had. Now it's like beach weather out there. So, Well, please turn in your Bible to John chapter 2 for our study tonight. We're in the Gospel of John chapter 2, just beginning this study of the Gospel of John. How many of you guys have got kids going back to school in the next two weeks? Yeah? Praise the Lord. Yes and amen. How many of you have already got kids back in school? All right. How many of you kids, or you parents, have permanently graduated your kids and they have moved out? Hey. (laughs) Do they ever move out? I saw like one of those over there. Man, it's that time of year, isn't it, where the kids are going back to school. So let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask the Lord to to minister. Father, we do thank you for the gift of being able to have children and for those of us that you have uh, blessed us with that in our lives. And Lord, we just pray that uh, you would bless the kids as they go back to school and the kids that are over in the children's ministry and the youth ministry and uh, Lord, those that are in college and Lord, also those that have grown up kids, Father, that they never stop being on our hearts and minds. And so we just lift them up to you. And as we spend time in John chapter two, Father, we just pray that you would minister, that you would really encourage our hearts where there's a lack of joy uh, in our lives, Father, that you would turn the water into wine, that you would take what's ordained and are just mundane, and you would cause it just to be filled with your, your joy. Father, would you set aside distractions and really touch our hearts in a special way this evening? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. The Gospel of John is different from Matthew, Mark, and Luke because it's not a synoptic gospel, meaning that it doesn't go in a chronological order, but John picks out seven signs, seven miracles, and he only records those seven miracles. Also, he focuses on the seven I am statements of Christ when Jesus says, I am the bread of life, I am the light of the world, and he doesn't go in a chronological order of the life of Jesus Christ. In John 20, verse 31, John tells us why he wrote this gospel. He says, And truly, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. I really respect the gospel of John, all of the gospels. Think about how difficult it would be to take all of the events that you saw in the life of Christ over a three-year period and boil it down to what seven should I focus on? What seven should I really record? And then what seven statements should I really focus on? So through the inspiration of the Spirit, he said these seven miracles and these seven I am statements are hopefully going to lead people to a place of faith and belief in Jesus Christ. And then as they believe in Jesus Christ, they have life through his name. We have eternal life, but we also have abundant life. Amen? And so the gospel of John is about us believing in Jesus, but also experiencing the life of Christ. Now, if you're taking notes and you're wondering where we're headed in chapter two, is first, we look at the first sign, the first miracle that John records for us. It's at a wedding. And it's a sign that's all about conversion, all about moving people's hearts to a place of faith. And then we're going to look at Jesus confronting as he comes into the temple and he cleanses the temple. So this is verse 1 of chapter 2. 
On the third day, there was a wedding in Canaan of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And that's significant. Jesus' mother is there. Mary is there. She seems to have responsibility in this wedding. Maybe it's a close family member, but she's playing a part in the planning and making sure that it all comes off and runs smoothly. And we're blessed here at our church to have lots of weddings and get to participate in that joy. And it's always fun to see family and friends and usually, especially the ladies, really come together to pull a wedding off. And Mary's in the epicenter of this particular wedding. In verse 2, Now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. And I love this. This particular couple, they decide, we're going to invite Jesus and his disciples. Of course, the relationship through Mary, but I think it's significant and it speaks to us. And maybe you're at that season of your life where you're engaged or you're praying and thinking about getting married. Or you've got kids that are entering into that season of life. And the most important thing at a ceremony is to invite Jesus to be there. For his presence to be there. Jesus, you're the honored guest. And we ask that you would bless this ceremony. And we welcome you into this marriage. People can spend thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars on weddings. And if they don't invite Jesus to be there, there's something missing. Everything may be perfect. You know, the flowers may be perfect. The cake may be perfect. The perfect place, the perfect location, the perfect dress, the perfect suit, all that stuff. But Christ's presence is is not there. And on the flip side, you can't put a dollar amount on the presence of God. You can't just buy off Jesus and say, here's a thousand, why don't you show up? There has to be relationship with Jesus Christ. And maybe some of you are saying, well, it's too late. You know, the wedding's already happened and we really didn't think to invite Christ to be there. Well, as we'll see in our study tonight, Jesus is into marriage. It's his idea, it's his institution, and it's never too late to invite Jesus into your marriage. Because it's not just Jesus coming to the ceremony, but it's Jesus being present in everyday life of marriage, saying, Christ, I can't do this on my own, and I desire for you to come and work in it. Jesus is there and his disciples. In verse 3, And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to them, They have no wine. Now, as a pastor and participating in the privilege of the joy of a lot of weddings, most of them have some hitch. And that kind of is a shock and a chagrin sometimes to the bride and the groom, but it's also what makes the wedding memorable. In time, throughout history, what's passed down about the particular wedding day was, well, the cake was awful. You know, it just didn't turn out the way that it was supposed to. And there's one particular wedding that stands out for me And it was just after this side of the church had been complete and built, and it was a wedding in the foyer, which is a great place for for a wedding. And it was a gal that had grown up in our church, and my wife and I had known her since she was in, in middle school. And we were going through the wedding, and we were right about at the vows time, and I see the brother over here standing with the guys, and he starts to wobble, and he he faints, he passes out. And you got to hand it to dad. He's sitting there in the front row and he sees his son start to, to have weak knees and he caught him before he hit the concrete, you know, and that's, that's memorable. If you're ever in a wedding or you're getting married, just remember to lock your knees. That's the key. <laughs> but that wasn't all, is the bride, she kind of had a long veil thing and I've got pretty big feet and she goes walking down the aisle and I see the back of her head go, 
and I realized I'm standing on the end of the veil. So I was like, whoop, there you go. And she's, she's off. And this particular wedding that we read about in John 2, it also had its hitch, didn't it? It had its difficulty. And you have to understand first the culture of the nation of Israel, of the Hebrews, is they were into weddings. Even poor families were into weddings. Weddings would normally be in the evening and then the bride and the groom would have a torch parade. Could you imagine? Back to the home and then catch this. The wedding lasted seven days. So everybody that was invited to the wedding would then go over to the house of the bride and the groom, and you'd basically have an open house for for seven days. But then the bride and the groom would go to a secluded private area and enjoy intimacy with the rest of the family right outside the door. You know, it's like, man, that is no honeymoon. I got to tell you right there. But this is the kind of gathering that it was and this huge celebration and this big deal. And if you didn't have wine, it was a huge sign of not having hospitality. And we try to understand the wine in their culture. And we'll look at some verses in the Old Testament. But wine wasn't about excess. You know, it wasn't about drunkenness. Wine was about celebration and joy. The, the wine represented celebration and joy. Historians tell us if you didn't have wine at a Hebrew wedding, then you could actually be sued. You could have a lawsuit against you for not providing wine. This is a huge cultural taboo to get through partially through this wedding, through the seven days, and like, we don't have any wine. And it's like, there's no cake. You know, there's, the groom didn't show up. I mean, this is a, a big deal for them. So the wine does represent celebration and joy. In Psalms 145, verse 15, it says, and wine, it makes the heart of man glad. And then in Isaiah 55, verse 1, it says, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy and eat. Yes, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. And Psalms 55 is talking about more than just physical wine, but it's talking about the joy of the Lord. So Mary, the mother of Jesus, she's got a problem. Atlantis, we have a problem. Verse 4. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. She brings this problem to Jesus, and Jesus addresses her as woman. Now, please understand that this is the deepest term of respect. There's no contempt here. In our culture today, you know, if you call your wife woman, it it just doesn't work. Guys, I wouldn't suggest you, you do it. There's just something that's just not right. It just doesn't sit right. And so you could look at verse four and go, man, Jesus is being a real jerk to his mom. But the opposite's actually true. He's showing respect here to his mom by addressing her as, as woman. In fact, when he's dying upon the cross, he'll do it once again, and he'll talk to, to his mom and address her as woman. And then it's interesting what Jesus says. He says, you know, what does this concern have to do with me? Mom, this is your problem. You know, why are you coming to me with the fact that there's no wine? Now, please bear with me on this, but I think that, guys, you'll agree is that we get ourselves into some things that we would have never, ever gotten into if it wasn't for the key ladies in our life, you know? For our mom, our wives. There's some things I never thought that I would be in a craft store or, you know, be in a 
place where they sell fabric and all these kind of things. But I enjoy spending time with my wife and it's important to her. And so I'll go there, not because if you see me across the street, I think it's at Joanne's. It's not my most favorite place to be. I just enjoy spending time with my wife. And I was bringing this up with Amber last night as I was studying this. And she said the opposite is true as well. I mean, we get our wives into places that they would have never been if it wasn't for relationship with us. I mean, I don't think my wife would have ever shot a shotgun if it wasn't for being married to me, but now she has, right? And so that's the joy of marriage and the joy of relationship. And, but I don't think Jesus would have been in this whole situation and been concerned about it if it wasn't for his relationship for his mom and his respect for, for his mom. And he says something interesting here. He says, my hour has not yet come. And Jesus will speak of this again in John 12, uh, that his hour has come. It's time for him to be glorified. And he's speaking of his death upon the cross. But he says here, my hour's not come. In verse 5, his mother said to the servant, whatever he says to you, do it. (laughs) Lord bless Mary's heart, right? She will not take no for an answer. She heard Jesus say, no, my hour hasn't come. And she just looks at the servant and says, whatever Jesus tells you to do, you do it and walks away. Puts the pressure right upon Jesus. What's interesting though, is I think it is significant because some people get caught up with making too much of Mary. Obviously Mary was a wonderful woman of God, used by God, looking forward to meeting her in eternity, but she's not somebody that we pray to. She's not somebody who can save us and out of her own words, what is she doing? She's pointing people to Jesus. She's saying, you do what Jesus says. Whatever he tells you to do, you should do it. In verse 6, Now there were set there six water pots of stone, according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. So right here we have these containers, these water pots of stone. And the reason for it was for purification. Going back to the Old Testament and the cleansing, the the washing that would need to take place before you came in to worship. It's interesting as you go to Israel today and you look through all of these old ancient sites, there'll be all of these pools that they had built for purification. So these stones were here for their ceremonial washing. And Jesus is going to use this water to turn it into wine. And everything significant in the scriptures, Jesus is showing us that the law doesn't bring joy. The law doesn't bring life. It's only Jesus Christ who brings joy and life. If, if you're a Hebrew and you associate this water with cleansing and then Jesus uses that same water to turn it to wine, Jesus is saying something significant. Joy comes through relationship with Jesus Christ, not through rules and regulations. You know, the law is going to lead to one or two things. Pride, because we did a really good job of keeping the law. Or self-condemnation, because we fell short of the law. But true joy is found in knowing that we're accepted and loved by Jesus and the sweetness of walking with Jesus. So where Jesus gets the water is significant. In verse 7, Jesus said to them, Fill the water pots with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. Notice instructions given to the servants. I want you to fill up these stone water pots 
than to take the water and give it to the master of the feast is they're being asked to participate in this miracle even though they're not the source of it. There's some obedience that needs to happen on the side of the servants. And why is that? Because I think God's doing a work in the lives of the servants. Can you imagine? They've got the front row seat. They know the dilemma. They get to kind of see the drama that's happening with Mary and Jesus. And then they get to experience, we put water in and wine came out. In verse 9, when the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and didn't know where it had come from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, every man at the beginning sets out the good wine. And when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior, you have kept the good wine until now. This reminds me of a story. There was a guy that was coming across the border at El Paso. And he was El Paso, Texas, from Mexico into the United States. That's funny just in and of itself. But here he is with this big tank of water, right? So here's this water that's coming out of Mexico into the United States. Big semi-trunk pulling this tractor trailer of water. And of course, the guards going, why are you bringing water from Mexico into the United States? The best water is not known to be found in Mexico, right? So he says, well, what do you got back there? Oh, just, just some water. And the guard says, well, I'm going to go check it out for myself. And he opens up the tank, puts his finger in, tastes it, and puts it in there again, tastes it. And sure enough, it's tequila. This guy's smuggling in all this tequila into the United States. And so he confronts the driver, and the driver says, Praise the Lord, Jesus has done it again. (laughs) Uh. So anyway, the wine of this life, it fades, doesn't it? The wine kind of representing the joy of this life and the celebration of this life. Every good moment, it, it fades apart from Jesus Christ. But when Christ turns water into wine, it increases. The joy that we have in the Lord, it increases. The knowledge that we have of the Lord, it increases. I was reading one pastor, and he was talking about, you know, the things that God shared with him when he was a new believer compared to after 50 years of walking with the Lord. It's just so much richer and deeper and and sweeter. And when God does something, he does it incredibly. And the master of the feast is saying, this is incredible wine. You know, normally they save the cheap stuff to last till when people have already had and their fill, but you've saved the very best to last. And with Christ, he saves the best to last as we walk with him. In verse 11, this beginning of signs Jesus did in Canaan of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. So this is the beginning of the signs. This is the first miracle that Jesus did in Canaan of Galilee. This is the Sea of Galilee where Jesus spent most of his earthly ministry, the three years of public ministry, just a beautiful spot. And notice what this sign does. It manifests his glory. And the result of seeing the glory of God, then the disciples believed in Jesus Christ. Notice that John doesn't call these miracles. They are miracles, but he calls them signs because just as you read a sign, it tells you about something. And these miracles tell us something about Jesus Christ. They're to teach us something about the glory of God and also impact and change our lives. So this isn't just about turning water into wine. It's about converting hearts to a one true living God. 
Before we move on, I think there's several things to consider with this miracle, this first sign that Jesus did. And first, let's deal with the issue of alcohol, right? Because some will will build and kind of their whole theology about drinking on this one miracle. And they'll go, well, Jesus turned water into wine, so I'm going to drink and I'm going to go for it and not understanding what the scriptures tell in totality. So I want to try to cover this from a biblical perspective. I think it's really important on these issues that we look at what the scripture has to say and not necessarily what we would think. And first, when it comes to drinking, what's the issue first and foremost? It's drunkenness. We know that from Ephesians 5, that God says, do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. So you can really experience the joy of the Lord. So we know that if we get to that place of drunkenness, the Holy Spirit can't control us the way the Holy Spirit would like. And so that's something that we definitely need to stay away from. Also, when it comes to drinking, we can't cause somebody else to stumble. And the scripture is very clear on that. And the issue in the New Testament was kosher and unkosher. You've got Jews and Gentiles who are getting saved. So the Gentiles felt the freedom to enjoy a bacon cheeseburger, where the Jewish brother in Christ is like twitching, right? He's like, I can't, that's unclean. And so you don't grab your bacon cheeseburger and just start to bust it out in front of your Jewish brother and cause him to stumble by your freedom. What would you do? You, you eat your bacon cheeseburger in private. And that's so you're not stumbling that fellow believer in Christ. And Paul builds a very strong case about giving up our freedom so we don't cause someone else to stumble. So how does this play out? Maybe you know somebody that you love and respect as your brother and sister in Christ, and alcohol has been a real issue for them. It's been real bondage, and they've worked really hard in their relationship with Christ, and depending upon others and friendship and accountability to get freed from that, then you wouldn't want to use your liberty in front of them and stumble them in a way that would cause them to enter in back into drunkenness. Does that make sense? So we always want to be factoring that in when it comes to to drinking. And sometimes what we excuse in moderation, somebody else will excuse in, in excess. So it's not saying that you can't drink or it's a prohibition against drinking, but your brother or sister in Christ is one that you look to and say, I want to make sure that I don't cause them a problem in in my drinking. We do find Paul writing to the elders of the church, and he says, don't be given to to much wine. Obviously, for leaders in the church, it can be much easier to cause somebody else to stumble because people are looking at the, the choices that they make. And also, I think we need to understand when it comes to this issue of drinking that that's what the scripture says. You know, those are the things that the Bible says. And some people want to be too legalistic on drinking, and some want to be too liberal on, on drinking. It says, how about we just stick to the scripture? I mean, there's been a lot of pastors that have just slaughtered John chapter 2 and said, no, Jesus didn't turn water into wine, because they just can't deal with that fact in their mind. And they go, it was grape juice. No, it says it was wine, and the guy actually really liked it. You know, it tasted really good. It was the best wine that he'd had at the whole entire feast. So you can't take away from the scriptures either and try to make it out to be something else. And so it's safe to always stick inside of what the scripture says. Let me share my heart with you as a pastor. Is one of the things of just getting to be around a lot of people and working with people is we get to see a lot of times the destruction that alcohol brings in someone's life and and the abuse and the damage that happens in relationships because of alcohol. And a lot of times people think it's never going to be a problem in my life. 
I'll always be able to handle this in moderation. And then there comes a time of real trial, of deep depression, and turn to alcohol instead of turning to the Lord, and all of a sudden they're hooked. And so it is something to be very prayerful about and be very careful about and ask a question, you know, is it controlling me? You know, or through the power of the Holy Spirit, do I have control over it? So that's the first kind of no fun issue to deal with in this Miracle, And then the second is this, is Jesus shows his approval of marriage and his vital role in marriage. Have you ever heard, you know, why do you have to have a marriage ceremony? I'm sure you have, right? As you've been talking with people, or maybe you even think that. Well, why is it so important to go get a marriage license and to get married and to, to have that civic representation that we're a married couple before the Lord? And if you're questioning that, Jesus, at the beginning of his ministry and his first miracle, is done at a wedding ceremony that's for the purpose of making the public statement that they're married. It's so easy to say we went out in front of a pine tree in Woodland Park and we made this commitment before God that we're husband and wife, so we don't really need that ceremony. And then two years later, you're with someone else around a different pine tree saying we're husband and wife together. There's something about making that public declaration before God and before friends, before better or for worse, that we're committed to each other. So that ceremony is something right here where Jesus puts his stamp of approval on by his presence there and his blessing in turning the water into wine. But also, it's not only just Christ's approval of marriage— but it's also Christ showing his vital role in marriage. And I just absolutely love this. Because water, well, it's pretty mundane, isn't it? It tastes like water. It's kind of tasteless. It's refreshing. We've got to have it sometimes. But there's just nothing too special about water. And marriage, apart from Christ being in the center of it, it can become pretty mundane. It can become where people easily take for granted each other. But you put Christ in the mix... And he takes something that's mundane and he causes water to be turned into wine. And this is a key ingredient. If you're single and you're wanting to be married or considering to be married, if you're, you're married tonight, is the most important ingredient in your marriage is Christ. And apart from, from Jesus, all of our resources in marriage will run dry. We'll find ourselves going, we have no wine. And we need Jesus to come and do something special in our relationship. Now, this is what I've observed most of the time in couples. Spiritual is not the most important because we're physical creatures. And so when couples meet, what's the first thing that they put on the top of the charts? A lot of times it's the physical attraction. He's hot. She's hot. That's Mr. Right. That's Mrs. Perfect. Why? Because of how they look. Now, I'm going to be honest here. That is a factor, okay? If you're not physically attracted to the person that you're considering marrying, you probably shouldn't marry them because someday you'll meet somebody who you are physically attracted to. God designed it. It's not bad to be physically attracted to your spouse, but it's not the only component. I just saw some of your faces. You're like, I can't believe he said that. (laughs) Yeah, I absolutely said it. You should be physically attracted to the person that you're going to marry. But it's not the only factor. It's one factor, but then the other factor is friendship, right? Companionship. And a lot of times people think through that as well. And they go, I understand the importance of companionship. I realize that 
after I get married, I'm not going to look any better. You know, we try to pretend that we'll continue to look better, but the best we ever looked was on our wedding day, and it's downhill from there, right? It's... I mean, I, I just can't believe, like, all this hair that's, like, my eyebrows and ear hair and nose. And Lord bless my poor wife. It's like, that wasn't there when I was 22 years old, you know? And so we think through that and we go, I've got to marry my best friend because physically I'm not going to get any more attractive, but we can easily leave out the spiritual and we cannot take into account the importance of Christ being in our marriage because it's Christ. He's the one that's really going to link us together and hold us together. And again, it's never too late. So what are some things to do? How do we put Christ into our marriage? A simple thing is be in church together, be in church together. And the enemy will attack that, but be in church together because then as you go home, you can talk about the things that the Lord is showing you. There's just nothing like it with being with your spouse and worshiping the Lord together. Just a little bit of advice if you're dating and the worship together doesn't come together during the dating period is you may really want to consider whether it's God's will to be married or not. You know, if you can't sort out where do we go to church and comfortability and worshiping the Lord together in a corporate setting like this, man, come to church together. Very simple things like, what's the Lord showing you? You know, how can I pray for you? Those aren't just natural conversations to have, but it's really important for husbands and wives. We talk about everything else. Hey, what's God showing you? How could I really be praying for you? Radical idea, but pray together. Just pray together. Doesn't have to be super deep or, you know, 15 minutes long, you know, a lot of times prayer for us is right before we go to sleep and sometimes it doesn't seem that spiritual. But there's something about just praying with your spouse every day, whether it's in the morning or the evening, and crying out to the Lord together. And nothing may feel more awkward than that. It's just hard sometimes to pray with somebody else. But continue to step in and make it a practice and a discipline in your marriage. Husbands, lead out in that. And you're like, oh no, now he's picking on me. I was doing so good to come on Wednesday night. You are doing good. And I'm proud of you, you know. But take that step and, and say, you know what? Yeah, let's be praying together. Possibly read God's word together. Pick, pick a book like the book of Proverbs and say, hey, let's just read a Proverbs a day. Or, hey, we're studying John on Wednesday night. Uh, let's read a chapter to get today together. But make Christ the key component of your marriage and watch out. You'll just see the, the Lord work. I can feel it in my family when we're putting Christ first, when we're getting giving the opportunity to have his proper place in our family. There's just a cohesiveness. Now, don't get me wrong. It's not that things are perfect and there isn't conflict and challenges and all of those things, but you just feel it. You go, the most important thing is locked in here. You know, the Lord is, has his proper place in our home and, and in our lives because he's the wine. He's the one who takes the water and he turns it to wine inside of marriage. Then the, another application here is, is this, and it's not so much to do with marriage, it's to do with our lives. Our lives are the water, and Jesus transforms it into wine. Jesus is the one that makes our life joyful, and it's only Christ that can do this. And in the Old Testament, the children of Israel turned away from God and looked for other sources of joy. This is Jeremiah 2, verse 13, it says, For my people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and hewn for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So not only did they forsake God, but they looked for other sources 
of joy. You guys familiar with Ernest Hemingway's life? He's one of the greatest writers who ever lived, and he was known for trying to find the wine of life. And what I mean by that is, is the joy of life and the happiness of life. Are you familiar with how his life ended? He committed suicide, took a shotgun to, to his head. Though he had all of what this life had to offer, he didn't have the joy that Christ can offer. And just like the wine wore out in this wedding, all of the other wells will run dry until we turn to the Lord. Let's examine our hearts a little bit tonight. Do we have joy? They're saying, I don't even really know what joy is. It's not happiness. Happiness is based on our circumstances. Joy is based on who God is in our relationship with him. In Nehemiah, it says, the joy of the Lord is our salvation. I think all of us are on a, a journey for joy. A lot of times as Americans, we're just living for that one moment that'll be just right, where we can unplug from all of our responsibilities and take a vacation, get to Saturday where we can relax or get to the weekend. And all of that's going to leave us empty until we look to God and say, God, you're the living water. And see, God loves that we come and hear his word, but that's just the start. He wants to touch us. He wants to come and, and transform us and take what's mundane and maybe even depressed and where we feel like giving up and taking that very spot and turning it into wine and turning it into a place of joy as we look to him. You know, I studied this carefully and I noticed that the water didn't turn itself into wine. Isn't that profound? <laughs> See, I can't turn myself into a joyful person and I've sure tried. It's a genuine work of the Spirit of God as we rely upon Jesus Christ, as we cry out to him and say, Jesus, I'm looking to you to be my portion, for you to be my living water, and it's the fruit of the Spirit that is joy. And some people, they just got it, you know? They can't, they can't fake it. It's just real. It's this genuine joy and inside of them. I call it the Jesus glow, and it's just Jesus has touched them, and they're walking in the joy of the Lord. And that's what we desire tonight. We can come to God with that area of our life that's water and say, God, would you turn it into wine? Wonderful. Verse 12. After this, he went down to Capernaum, he and his mother, his brothers, and his disciples, they didn't stay there many days. Just a beautiful section of Israel around the Sea of Galilee. Wonderful scenery and companionship as they come to Capernaum, which was the home base for Jesus and his ministry. In verse 13, Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now if you take the time to look at a map of Israel, Galilee is up here, and Jerusalem is down here, but what does the scripture say? They went up to Jerusalem. Because anytime you're going to Jerusalem, you are always going up because it was a place of worship, even if you were going south. Does that make sense? So they're going up to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and money changers doing business. So this is what he finds as he comes to the temple. Why are they selling oxen, sheep, and doves? It was for sacrifice, saying, here's your temple-approved sacrifice. So here, you can't use this dove that you brought. And they were making a ton of money ripping the people off. And also, they were money changers because people would come from all of these different countries to the temple to worship, and they would charge them just at a terrible exchange rate. So in verse 15, and when he'd made a whip of cords, he drove them out of the temple with sheep and oxen 
and poured out the changers' money and overturned the tables. Now, if you're familiar with these sections of scriptures, sometimes we can get dull to their impact. Because here's Jesus, all meek and mild at the wedding, turning water into wine. And then here he gets his whip out, and he's just like, and then here he's like a table, just throws it. And all of a sudden, the lion's a lamb. And that's Jesus Christ. Anybody C.S. Lewis fans? All five of you, the rest of you, never heard of them? Okay. Chronicles of Narnia, anybody? Yeah? Well, go further than just watching the movies because in The Dawn Trader, they've made a movie of it, but it's a book. And in the book, we find Edmund and Lucy. They're in this meadow, in this valley, this grass. And here's this lamb that's in the center of the, the meadow. And the, the lamb is making them breakfast. Probably taken off of John 21, where Jesus, the lamb, makes Peter breakfast as Peter's restored unto his relationship with the Lord. And as they're talking with the lamb, it's the best breakfast they've ever had. And all of a sudden, the lamb turns into the lion. And the lion is Aslan, who represents Jesus Christ. And C.S. Lewis was illustrating this truth that the lamb is the lion. And we see with Jesus that he is the lamb. He's meek, he's mild, he was crucified for our sins, but he's also this lion that confronts in such an intense way. And he does it here. Notice that he makes a whip. So he's angry. This is righteous anger, but it's controlled. You know, it's not this fit of rage. He takes the time to make this whip, and then he cleans these guys out. And why does he do that? Because the people of God are getting ripped off. And Jesus never got angry because his toes were being stepped on. But he did get angry when the people of God were getting taken advantage of, especially when it comes to their worship of God. This is the place that they were to meet with the Lord. Jesus, as he takes on this lion demeanor, there were times when he spoke to Peter and he said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. There were times that he spoke to the Pharisees and he says, you're a bunch of snakes. You're a brood of vipers. There was times where he talked to him and said, you're a whitewashed tomb. You're a dead grave. And so Christ can also confront in a powerful way. I think culturally, all we want is a meek and mild Jesus. So don't take the lion aspect away from him as well. He's the lamb, but he's also the lion. And it continues in verse 16. And he said to those who sold the doves, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Then his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house has eaten me up, quoting from the Psalms. Zeal for your house has eaten me up. And this word, eaten me up, it, it's consumed. You know, it's similar to when we say, you know, this is just really eating me up. This has gotten under my skin. It's, it's a burr underneath my saddle. And that's the same way Christ is saying, this has consumed me. This has really bothered me in what you have, have done here. Now, to understand this, we have to know the importance of the temple. And in 2 Kings, or 1 Kings, excuse me, chapter 8, Solomon builds the first temple. And God responds to the prayer of Solomon with his presence. And the presence of God is so thick, the priests cannot even perform their worship unto the Lord. The temple was set apart to be a place where God's presence dwelt, and people knew that they could come and meet the presence of God. Now, in the New Testament, where's the temple? And in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 16, it says this, and what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, 
I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. So as God was zealous for this physical temple and the purity of it to be a place where they could meet with God, now God is zealous for the purity of our temple. And do we take that seriously? And do we have reverence with that? Do you see yourself as the temple of the living God bought with a price by the Lord? So we have to ask this question, is there anything in my temple, which is ultimately the Lord's temple, this is his temple where he's chosen to dwell, that would make him angry and he'd want to clean out? Are there any tables that God would want to overturn in my life where he gets out his cleansing whip, his confrontation and say, this has got to go? How many times do I make Christ angry by the way that I treat someone else who's also his temple? Do I view other brothers and sisters in Christ in this way? It's convicting, isn't it, to stop and think about it in those terms, to say, Lord, what is it in my life that you'd want to cleanse? How do you want me to change the way that I treat others? Something's been lost amongst the children of Israel. They've lost the reverence of God and the knowledge of God, haven't they? And it's displayed in their worship to where their very leaders saw their congregational gatherings only as an opportunity to make money. And there's a lot to be said about our understanding of God by how we worship together and our attitude towards it. And I think there's something wonderful that's happened in our culture and our understanding of God and and a comfortability of being able to come to the Lord and in a sense that real friendship with the Lord. But we also want to balance that with reverence that prepare our hearts and prepare our lives when we come in together on a Wednesday night to sing to the Lord. When we come in on a Saturday night or a Sunday morning, there were prior generations that would say, you know what, I'm going to really prepare for Sunday morning, Saturday night. You know, Elizabeth Elliot writes about how important worship was to her on Sunday so she would prepare her heart Saturday night so she could come in and worship the living God on, on Sunday. And if we just see our time together as, oh, you know, this could be a good business transaction. You know, this is, could be a good opportunity to, to network, to be able to, to make more money. In essence, we're, we're doing the same thing, aren't we? We've lost sight. And what the sad thing here is the leaders had lost sight of the sweetness and the reverence of coming in to God's presence together. And please pray for us as a pastoral staff. We don't want to be in this place. We don't want to be where we're just, you know, counting how many people are in seats and how big the tithes and offerings are, then it just becomes merchandise. We want to be about the glory of God and coming into his glory and being able to meet together as as God's people. Jesus is zealous for his house. Verse 18. So Jesus answered and said to him, what's the, excuse me, the Jews answered and said to him, what sign do you show to us since you do these things? It's a legitimate question. What authority do you have to, to do these things? In verse 19. Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will rise it again. The Jews says, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? Herod was doing a building project on the temple, and he'd been building for some time. They're like, There's no way you can rebuild it in three days. But Jesus was talking about his body, that his body would be raised from the dead three days after his crucifixion. In verse 21, But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he'd said this to them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. 
Have you ever had this happen where you're studying and you're reading a section of scripture and it just flies over your head? And you're like, oh man, I don't even understand that. And then five years later, 10 years later, you're like, oh, I get it. And God illuminates that section of scripture. And see what you've done is you've taken the time to invest God's word. And then God in his faithfulness will take the opportunity to illuminate his word. So you're walking with Christ and Christ will reveal himself to us. This is how this chapter ends in verse 23. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men and had no need that anyone should testify of man for he knew what was in man. This is a shallow and insincere faith. They believed but it wasn't sincere. They only responded to the signs that were being done. And Romans 10, 9 tells us it's not just any old faith, but it's faith in the heart that saves. Even the demons believe. And so Jesus sees through, yes, they have faith, but it's not sincere faith, so he doesn't commit himself to them. We know our hearts, and in our hearts we know if we've trusted in Jesus on his finished work upon the cross. Jesus doesn't need the report card on anybody. He doesn't need the investigator, the private eye, to go, oh, you know, know, tell me a little bit about this person. Tell me a little bit about that person. He knows us, and he sees us, and he sees through all of our masks, and hopefully, prayerfully, we can get to a place where we're sincere with him, and we're authentic before the Lord, and what's going on in our hearts and our lives, we can bring to him. I would much rather be like the man in the Gospels who is honest, who says, I believe, but help my unbelief. So this is exactly where I'm at. I'm being sincere with the condition of my heart. So a few things to consider in application. Has the wine run out in your life? And be honest. Has the wine run out in your life? And I'm not talking about alcohol in that sense, but I'm talking about joy. Has joy run out in your life? And you look and you go, you know, yeah. I can't say that I've got joy. And maybe it goes a little bit further, or like Solomon, it's this pursuit of things outside of God to bring joy. Maybe in the back of my mind, it's my job that I'm really looking for to bring me satisfaction. Even good things like your family. And you know in your heart, I've really put my family up in that place to be the source of joy in my life. I'm not a very joyful person. And I think just across the board as the body of Christ is this is something that we could really grow in. Not just our fellowship, but Christians in general, me included. Sometimes I feel like Christians are the most grumpy and gossipy people on the planet, right? It's like, how you doing today? Well, I'm pretty good. I hate my church. I hate my job and my kids are lousy and but God loves me, you know? It's Like We know all these truths up here, but it really hasn't hit our hearts and being in that place of being thankful. But once again, we don't have to try to conjure it up on our own. We bring the need to Jesus like Mary did and say, God, you know, it's really water in my life. It's, It's mundane in my life. And would you bring it to that place of joy? Maybe something's lacking in your marriage. You say, you know, somehow, some way, it's just naturally gone this direction of second law of thermodynamics. You're familiar with it, right? It's in our garages. I clean my garage and organize it, and inevitably it never stays that way. It's you know, like, you know, my husband, my wife, we love each other. We're committed to each other. We would never 
think about divorce or being unfaithful, but the spark's gone. The, the passion's not there. If I'm honest, I'd pretty much rather do anything else than sit down and talk with my spouse for two hours. Let's watch a movie. The Broncos season's starting. Anything, you know, and that, that romance and that pursuit, it, it's gone. The fun, it's been, been taken out of. And, and see, God, he, he cares about your marriage, and he's got this vital role that he wants to play and coming to the Lord and saying, God, would you do something that only you can do? And maybe you're here without your spouse and God will honor your prayer. And open up to the Lord and say, Lord, would, would you do something here? It's significant. And then what is in our temple that Christ would want to cleanse out? He's here. He's, he's present. He is the lamb. And what things would he want to confront and say, this has got to go? We're going to conclude now in communion, and communion is this special time with the Lord to really wait upon the Lord, to draw near to him, and the elements are here. And what does communion represent? The broken body of Jesus Christ and the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And as we have read the written word, to now enter in and spend time with the living word, to open up our hearts before him, to remember his love for us, and to meet with him, receive his forgiveness and then go away having experienced the bread of life. And if you don't know Christ as your Savior, you haven't come to that place of committing your heart, maybe like these, you have a faith, but you know in your heart you've never said yes to Jesus. As we come and take communion, there'll be a ministry team that's available just to pray with you, to answer any questions that you'd have about Christ, and introduce you to Jesus. But it's so important, so important that you open up your heart and your life to Christ. He loves you. He desires to be in relationship with you. You don't know how long your life is going to be. And take advantage of tonight. The scripture says today is the day of salvation. So let's stand together.